The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 100. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more, including now books. Today we're discussing the novel called Picard, Last Best Hope by Una McCormick. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Uh, Folks, remember to subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where you should hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes uploaded to the SQPN YouTube channel. So, as I mentioned, we're talking about this book that just came out in the spring of 2020, uh, just around the time that the new Picard series started. Uh, So I'm going to right now give you a spoiler warning. We're going to spoil the book, but that also might contain spoilers for the series. Which we, we Very usually likely get in- will contain spoilers for the series. There's yes. quite a bit there actually that ties into the series. Yeah. So we we just we usually do spoil things, but just as a reminder, we're going to spoil the book and the series. So if you haven't you know watched the series and you intend to, or if you haven't read the book and you intend to, that th- this is your chance to pause and do those things and come back. So um, let's uh, let's get into this. So the book itself is a prequel to the Picard series. Uh, it introduces some of the characters we see in the series, including Rafi, Bruce Maddox, Agnes, the Coat Malat, uh, Admiral Clancy uh, mm-hmm. has a bigger role in the book than she does in the in the series. And it sets up Picard's big mission to save the Romulan people that ends up failing and sets him back to where we see him at the beginning of the Picard series. It's uh, essentially the story of the big Save the Romulans mission. Yes. So it actually even is a kind of a prequel to the 2009 movie that set up the whole idea of the Romulan supernova. Right. That's you know, and that's an interesting aspect of it is that it you know, we'd never seen anything post that in in Star Trek. Like Star Trek Picard mm-hmm. series is the first you know part of Star Trek post that event, and so it 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 re- confirms that that the events of that movie are canon as much as Star Trek yeah. is canon. And uh, and that there, you know, that there is more to it than, than what we saw in the movie. Um, it in the book basically, and we'll get into this, contains metaphors for climate change, welcoming refugees, anti-immigrant politics. So it it's all sort of bundled up in the book. Uh, one thing you've mentioned before, Jimmy, is that it seems like the author had access to the scripts for the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm convinced that the author had to like have the scripts for the series because there are so many little things, even on the level of dialogue, right. that show up in the series that are also in the novel, and so I'm, they 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 had to give her the scripts. Well, that would that would make sense though if they're going to position this book as setting up the conditions where Picard is and yeah. where everybody else is at the beginning of the series. This is the job of this book. There, you know, had, show there had to be close coordination. Leaving, yeah. You know, so you can imagine she basically got the, you know, here's the, the Bible, so to speak, you know, the quote unquote Bible for the series. Here's, you know, the dialogue. Here's the scripts. Here's yeah. what we want you to tell. The story we want you to tell. Go at it. Right. I, li- I listened to the audiobook version of it and the actor who did the voice work for the audiobook version was quite talented. He was an American, so the narration was done with an Amer- with an American accent, but he really could mm-hmm. do a nice John Luke Picard. 
<laughs> oh, cool. Nice. And he did a variety of other accents, like there's a, a typical Scottish engineer in it, and so he does a good <laughs> job with her, both doing a female voice and a Scottish accent at the same time. Nice. I also was impressed with the writer. Uh, the author, it, I'm I'm pretty picky about writing. I am not easily impressed by uh, franchise novels, which this mm-hmm. you know is one example of, uh, because they can often use writers who couldn't make it doing their own novels, right? And so yeah. they're not always that great. But this author was quite good, and I mm-hmm. also like the fact that she proves that yes, there are apparently people named Una. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so number one's name, your name is Una. It yeah. has a little more realism. That's true. The the funny part is the whole issue with number one. I when I first saw the author's name, I thought this has got to be somebody else writing under a, a stage name <laughs> to uh, to to match in with that. And it's like, yeah. no, she's actually a published author from Great Britain and yeah. has done quite well as a published author. I just never heard. I think she's more young adult fiction, yeah. young adult sci fi than she is more mainstream sci-fi i think she's also done some star wars if i'm not mistaken but i might i might be wrong on that but i, I think i've seen her do other franchise writing as well it's interesting her coming from uh britain that the the novel and you know the title it could have been given her i don't think it was simply picked by the publisher though because it's yeah. integral to the structure of the novel last best hope that's right. a phrase from american history um yes. that's from a an address that abraham lincoln gave to congress in 1862 where he said, we will nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. Right. And what he was talking about was democracy, because America was still new, most nations were still monarchies, and so the idea of having a a democratic state without an aristocracy, without a nobility, was was a new concept. And uh, it was America was viewing itself as kind of a great experiment to show the world that this style of governance was possible. And, you know, some countries looked at America and thought, oh, this is never going to work. You know, give it what? A couple hundred years. Right. Um, yeah. um, they might be right. But, some yeah. countries are still thinking that. <laughs> but uh, but the novel is structured based around that quotation. And now the mm. first thing is is to note is it's no longer the last best hope of Earth, and we're no longer right. talking about democracy, this Romulan saving mission. It's it's more general. I think I guess you could look at it different ways, but last best hope on one level refers to the attempt to save the Romulan people, but it also is a kind of a test for Federation altruistic ideology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of on trial in the novel and that progressively fails. But the novel is structured. You have the hope is part one and then the best is part two and then the last is part three. So they take the quote, Hmm. the quotation from Abraham Lincoln in reverse order as the project fails. Starts with hope, then it brings out their best and then you get the last where they fail. Yeah, it's it's really... uh... It's a great, I mean, it really is a great structure because then it kind of, you know, helps you see as the project moves through. And and it's, it's almost more like slices of time in the project. Yeah. You see kind of the beginning, you kind of see, you know, they're really successful points in the middle and then you see the end of it. And it's clear that there's more happening kind of in between the chapters. And over the course of years, it takes place over over the course of like five or six years. I think if I remember right, because it shows the, 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 the earth state, if you will, the, the, the ED dating or common era dating yes. in, in each chapter. And at the end, we have Picard reflecting on resigning his commission. We, as, you know, again, we know this from the series. And, mm-hmm. and thinks of, in, the quote is, losing his last best chance to save lives, which is a, a re- right. recalling that because, because of the failure of the mission, because of the failure of, of, of his estimation of how willing the Federation and Starfleet were to, to doing this. And uh, it kind of reminded me of Oscar Schindler's lament at the end of Schindler's List, where in and in reality, where he he laments how many more lives the, he could have saved and should have saved. Right. Uh, and and it's it's very interesting to see that you know by the end of this novel, Picard is broken, Starfleet and the Federation are broken. You know that mm-hmm. they weren't the last best hope, <laughs> or they failed at no. being the last best hope. 
Well, I mean, we already know that the last best hope is Babylon 5, so. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the things we learned from the novel that pertain to the series. Uh, one of the things we learned, and, and I mentioned that uh, she's a bigger character in the novel than she is in the, in the series, is Admiral Clancy, who is, mm-hmm. in the series she's Admiral Clancy. At this point, she's uh, only Captain Clancy, and she's sec- basically the second to the Commander-in-Chief of Starfleet. And and in the series, she's she is really kind of dismissive at of Picard and 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 mad at him. He, she thinks he's arrogant. Um, we get and, hints well, and, of this. And here. Part of that part of that is because of what we see in the book with his resigning. But I think also part of it, and and I, I thought the series made it clear. Part of it too was because of his. You know, it started out with that hollow interview, right? Where he basically Starfleet has lost it. Starfleet isn't Starfleet anymore. And yeah. And then he comes back with hat in hand. Can I come back to Starfleet? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's that's part of that. That's a big part of it was we're seeing her anger at the immediate event that had happened before. But it is boiling over from the fact of like, well, either you do what I want or I quit. Yeah. I I liked seeing Clancy in the novel because it rounds out her character. What That initial mm-hmm. scene in this TV series between her and Picard is an exception. Now, even then, when right. we commented on it, she's got a point. She's not yeah. wholly wrong in that scene. He, right. he, he's made mistakes. But so even then, she came across as reasonable, even if she was at odds with Picard. But that's at the end of a bad sequence of events. Right. And he has, as Father Corey said, just really put his foot in it by, you know, melting down on TV. In the novel, we don't have any of that baggage yet. So we see them as two captains who are both from different, somewhat different viewpoints trying to tackle the same humanitarian crisis. Right. And she, she, we get to see more of the reasonable side of her. We also get to see uh, part of why she ends up as uh, the CNC of Starfleet, whereas Picard didn't. He, there's a moment in the novel where he's musing about the fact that she has more patience with the political process than he does, mm-hmm. and that enables her to work with the system and thus leads to her rising in the system, whereas he's like my way or the highway. He o- operates okay as a lone guy, but he's, he, he can't work the internal politics of the chain of command the way she's able to work right. with it. And, and yeah. that actually makes her more effective in some situations than him because yeah. she has a bigger support network than she, that she can draw on. And then, so we get to see this more rounded aspect of her character in the novel. And then we see that come back at the end of the TV series where he's like trying to convince her to send a fleet. And he's like, so he convinced he's going to have to climb this huge mountain to get her to send the fleet. It's like, Shut up, John Luke. I'm sending the fleet, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think Clancy is very recognizable, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, we, but we see it, it, her uh, different at this point, and, 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 and that's and good. I, I, I agree with Jimmy. She, I like her character, and I think both types, the Picard type and the Clancy type, are necessary for Starfleet, and we see why in this. Right. Uh, we also learn about Raffi a lot more. We learn about how what she sacrificed and how she sacrificed so much of her personal life with her, losing her husband and her son. And we also learn why she ended up resenting Picard so much at the beginning of the of the series. Uh, so it and and it was f- so frustrating to see how she kept sacrificing, you know, yeah. like uh, her family. There's a line about, oh, I'm going to miss, you know, my job is something that makes me miss my son's soccer games once in a while. And yeah. now it's going to be, I'm going to be gone for six months. And then it's going to be this, and you know. And now she's gone for years at a time. And it's like, uh, it just yeah, kind of, it's yeah. it's a lot of that thing that draw, that a lot of people deal with, which is, is that career versus, or, you know, this important mission. I have a mission in life. I'm I, right. that, and, and balancing that against my duty and obligation to my family and and it was hard to to read that at times well and you can you can kind of see where when she when they do sh- uh show her son when she runs into her son on free cloud that you do see how uh you can kind of connect the dots where she first she sacrificed him for the mission then she sacrificed him for her uh conspiracy theories quote unquote yeah 
I, I like the way the author paces this because you don't, if you're a responsible person, which Rafi is in broad strokes, you don't just walk away from your family. And that's not an easy thing for you. And so it needs to happen in stages. And that's that's the way the author does it. She ramps it up. So Rafi is like, okay, I'm not going to be able to make your game this week. And then right. it's, I'm not going to, I'm okay, well, well I, I have this important thing I need to do for my military career. I'll be gone for six months and then we'll reevaluate at that time. And then, of course, events conspire to keep her out in the field. And the, and so you know, if you watch the TV series, this is going to end badly for her. And you could even predict it from the book. But it is played nicely in stages. She loses her family bit by bit. She doesn't just walk away from them, you right. know, cold heartedly. Yeah. Right. We also learn um, why Picard left the Enterprise E and who ended up in command, i.e., Worf. Yeah. And how mm -hmm. Worf ended up being able to be made captain, even though we have those events from Change of Heart and DS9, where yep. he was basically told, this mark on your record will mean you'll never sit in the captain's chair. That comes up. They deal with that. And they talk about, well, we put Worf in the chair for the optics, which is kind of yeah. funny that it's still irrelevant in the 24th century. Well, but of course, it's interesting, though, because he had all but command of full command of the Defiant, just not right. as captain. Right. The Defiant was part of DS9. So, yes. But it was, uh, but it was his ship. Yeah. Yeah. To the point he lived there. <laughs> <laughs> he lived on board. But so, we, so it explains why Picard wasn't on the Enterprise and why we don't see the Enterprise in the Picard series. Another TNG character that we get a good bit of follow-up on is Geordi, and there yes, was concern yep. about Geordi, you know, did he survive the Mars attack, because apparently the sense killed everybody on Mars, and we only had in the TV series one line from Javon, the male Romulan, yep. 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 Yeah. Um, mentioning him, as, and so people could infer he's still alive, but we didn't have any details. Yeah, we didn't. In in this, we find out that Jordy was on a shuttle back to Earth when the sense struck, and yeah. so mm -hmm. he 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 wasn't there for the attack. So he indeed did survive. We, he's also uh, quite a significant character in this because he ends up transferring off the Enterprise just as Picard does. Because he, you know, now that Picard is in charge of the effort to save the Romulans. Picard's going to need an evacuation fleet, and that means they're going to need workers to build the ships for the evacuation fleet. Yep. And that means we need a world-class engineer in charge of that building project. So Picard essentially takes LaForge with him to head that up on Mars. Kind of knew that. I mean, that was kind of implied in the comic. We kind of, It was implied in the comic that he'd left the Enterprise to go yeah. run Mars because of that. Yeah, so, that's right. But this made it a little more clear. And we see we see how that project unfolds. So, like when LaForge gets to Mars, he's talking to the engineers at Utopia Planitia, and how we're going to have to reorganize all of our efforts. We're going to have to put all of our personal projects to one side. We're not working on that stuff anymore. It's all going into building this new fleet. And you have this, you know, decidedly mixed reaction. <laughs> Um, to, right. yeah. to such news, and uh, not everybody is on board with that. And then uh, LaForge ends up making an ally in this plucky uh, Scottish lady engineer who is the one that comes up with the idea of building synths to amplify their workforce. And she then, she she has part of the puzzle, but she knows she doesn't have all of it, so they bring in Bruce Maddox. And we meet mm -hmm. Bruce Maddox. We also meet his new graduate student, Agnes. Agnes, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we get to see their relationship. So it really plays nicely together. One thing that they do make very clear is that the synths are not Sung-type androids. Right. In the novel, Maddox actually resents building these things and thinks of them as mere toys because they are not full sentient data like robots and and so he he thinks this is wasting his time right well it's interesting too because they basically took the bio gel packs from voyager and amped them up into a humanoid yeah. body right they, i mean taking long story short one thing that was kind of interesting with the with the whole thing with geordie is that it, it makes an interesting contrast because of course you know 
Jordy's used to being on the flagship of the, the Federation. Everybody right. that's on there is the top of the top of the top of their game. So we need to do this. Everybody gets into action. Yeah. Now all of a sudden he's going to someplace else that's not quite as structured and quite as drilled as the Enterprise. And all of a sudden, wait a second. Why are you fighting me? I'm in charge. <laughs> yeah. You're not. Do what I tell you. Why aren't you doing it? <laughs> he gets pushback. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned, Jimmy, that uh, we we meet Maddox. We we see his relationship with Agnes begin and progress and then end. And we we see his obsession. Uh, he he gets he at one point he 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 thinks of Khan Noonien Singh's obsession in a positive light. He wishes he was more like him, which is you know mm-hmm. kind of disturbing. Uh, and we also find out more about Agnes. We find out that she was originally a medical doctor. That that's an important mm-hmm. element for the series. We also find out where Beverly Crusher is. Uh, that was one of my questions for the series. Where's Beverly? Is given the relationship with Picard uh, in the you know in Nemesis. And uh, so we have a departure for, with her, and she's doing her thing in relation to this effort. So well, we learned a lot from the book about the series. There's a lot of these elements. Uh, some of the things that it brings up that, that are part of the series is one of the, the ideas is the difficulty of reorienting an entire society's priorities and resources to help an historic enemy. At this point, the Romulans had been enemies of the Federation for centuries. Right. And Suddenly they have to say, okay, these people were our enemies, that's true, but they're in need, and we have to help them. And that, they, she writes this up, it was very difficult, and there was a lot of pushback, and a lot of people who were like, let the Romulans help themselves. They're, you know, you know, they, we, don't, they don't want help. We, we, we don't, definitely don't have the squeaky clean, we're already, we're, the, the Federation is willing to jump to help anybody at any time for any reason type yeah. of image that I think people have placed on it whether or not star trek has ever actually shown that right people have placed that that the federation is always these perfect saints of if something's going to happen we're going to do it right you know and it, you don't see that you see people that are okay we're going to help but reluctantly well but now it's hurting us so why should we help them when we got needs that need to be covered too this is and not what the uh, roddenberry rick berman future utopia that we are used to and uh one, one thing i think is interesting though because in the series they hinted that there were, what, 14 or 15 planets that were w- ready to secede. They yeah. show that process. That. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, and they, they show that process of how they're, you know, these outlying planets that feel like they're being excluded. And I, I kind of sympathize with them, you know, living in an outlying state, you know, as some <laughs> people see it, you know, kind of like, yeah, you, you consider that state and that state, but what about us? You know, we're the ones that do this, that, and the other thing, but you're not helping us, you know? Right. So I can I, I can kind of sympathize with these outlying planets. I like the fact that we get to meet one particular politician. I forget her name, but she's like West, the representative West, to yeah. the Federation Council from yeah. from one of these outlying planets that's actually close to the neutral zone. Mm-hmm. And from her perspective, the Federation is kind of a two level society, and this is unavoidable. I mean, you have these right. original home planets that by nature are densely populated, and then you have little tiny colonies. So who who's going to get the attention? Who's going to have the most cloud? And she views the Federation as kind of this, okay, if you're Andor or Vulcan or Earth, you're on the Security Council and you're one of the big dogs, but we're out here and don't get near as much attention and don't have near as much influence. And uh, and it's a reasonable perspective. I also find it interesting, the resonances with, with contemporary politics. You know, a lot of this in the novel reminded me of kind of the Cold War and how it ended. Yeah. Right. And there is kind of, if you think about it, there is kind of a parallel between the Federation, the Klingon Empire, and the Romulan Empire. If you treat the Federation as a surrogate for America and the Klingon Empire as a surrogate for Russia and the Romulans as a surrogate for China, Mm -hmm. you do have this kind of situation where, okay, kind of historically, we and the Russians were on the outs and then we kind of have had a reconciliation, but it's still fractious and has its ups and downs and that's kind of like the relationship between the federation and the klingons but then you have this other society that is 
still totalitarian and built around secrecy, which can cause problems, including world pandemics. <laughs> um, Sounds familiar. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, with lots of lying and suppression of the truth and so forth, which is actually part of the problem with the Romulans. Their own internal secrecy in the novel results in the crisis being far worse yeah. than it would be if they were an open society. I mean, they do to the there's a Romulan scientist we meet who and I like how even though he's a Romulan, he's also a nerd. And yeah. so he's like he's like obsessed with his research and has poor social skills. But he figures out faster than anybody that their son is going to go Nova and it's going to be bigger and sooner than they expect. And he gets persecuted by the state for trying to alert people to this. And it's just like that doctor in China who ended up dying because of the coronavirus, who was trying to blow the whistle on it, and the government locked him up. Right. And it's it's the same kind of thing. And this guy ends up dying in the supernova, too. And, of course, this book came out long before any of that happened. So that's kind of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or at least was written before any of that happened. So it's kind of interesting. Right. I, yeah, I do want to go back. The parallels, the resonances, you yes. know, have these real world connections. Yeah. I, I did want to mention like this politician from this little world. Very interesting. I think analog to some of our contemporary politicians who like little known prior who's trying to trying to get political exposure, uh, <laughs> trying to get in the news and, and raise their their uh, political power. Uh, and uh, it's it, what I find interesting is, is her opposition to the relief effort was what made her star rise, but it was her support for the use of synthetics, she thought they were the next best thing, were her mm -hmm. undoing. So I thought that was an interesting, the, the way they, the way they, uh, the, she, the author balanced that out there. Um, and uh, the other thing is, the, the, the Romulan penchant for secrecy, Byzantine dealings, how much that pervaded the story, even more so than we ever saw in, in TNG or even in uh, DS9, but we did see more of that in the Picard series. This, well, you know, it, there was a mention in the Picard series about the 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 front door and the back door, and every Romulan yep. house has a fake front door and a real back door, and and we see that taken to the nth degree in this one, where they go to this manor house, which is ridiculously convoluted and complex. Uh, yeah, there's like a maze out back, and you have to navigate your way through the maze based on subtle clues and misdirection <laughs> before you finally get in the back door and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And you got to look for clues to get the punch code. And it, it, it's interesting because they basically paint the Romulans as their entire culture, their entire being is based off of secrecy. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. it's something, again, they've hinted at in the series, you know, the Jat Vash, you know, being the. The, the phrase that you talk about someone, you know, sleeping in the, you know, being in the ultimate secrecy of death, you right. know, the Jat Vash, you know, that, that kind of thing uh, where it's just, that's, that's considered the greatest accomplishment of secrecy is you're dead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> dead men tell no tales. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing, uh, the last bit was uh, how um, Picard basically destroyed the neutral zone by, by bringing refugees across the border without authorization to resettle them on a Federation colony world. We saw that with, that was the Vashti, with the, who brings the Kowat Malat, and, mm -hmm. uh, and how that sort of undoes the, the neutral zone. Like, and we get references to that in the series, about how he, he basically single-handedly <laughs> destroyed all the diplomacy involved uh, with that. I, I wanted to comment on the, uh, on the, Jat, on, on the Kowat Malat, but also on Romulan sure. culture more broadly. Uh, we get mm -hmm. a lot more on Romulan culture than what we've seen on on the TV show. And it's not just all about the secrecy. We also have, like, we get aspects of their mythology. Mm -hmm. We learn some of their gods and stuff like that, and they're very colorful. At one point, Picard is musing how the Olympian gods of Greece seem tame in comparison <laughs> to these right. Romulan ones. Um, we also, you know, of course, we have the, uh, the Tal Shiar, available. So as part of coordinating a relief effort, Picard is assigned a Romulan liaison officer who is clearly Tal Shiar, but you know, they're not admitting that. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's a reasonable guy and he and Rafi kind of bond. At one point things are going so badly it's like they're both gonna go take chemicals uh to deal with the stress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, in addition to the Tal Shiar, we have a much broader explanation of the Koat Milat, 
We get to see how Picard really bonded with the Mother Superior that ends up on Vashti. Zani, yeah. Yeah, we get to learn Mm -hmm. how Elrond became, you know, their ward. And it's, and Picard really, it's really clear he really likes Mother Superior, that he's got a good relationship with her. It's like, why can't all Romulans be like you? Let's delve into some of those elements because that, that, those are some of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, there was a moment, like, speaking of Romulan culture, where Rafi reveals to Picard, like, the bizarre forms of uh, Romulan music. And she says, this is a quote from the book, this, um, re- referencing the Tal Shiar liaison officer, it might do something to him. Though this might backfire, he might make us listen to Romulan indeterminate polyphony, which yeah. turns out is each each singer is given a starting note, a musical key, and a tempo, but they're in separate rooms, and they're given a cue to start, and off they go. And she says, it sounds awful. <laughs> sounds like something John Cage would do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely cacophony, that's for sure. Oof. Yes, yes. I once participated in a John Cage concert. He was a, a kind of an avant-garde American composer, and I was part of an orchestra where I and another person for our instrument played the radio. So the, the, <laughs> sheet, the sheet music was written so that you tune to a given frequency. At, at one person's controlling the frequency, the other person is controlling the volume. The sheet music tells you what to do and when to do it. But there's no regard given to what the local radio stations are. So, it's, <laughs> so it, could be, it, it comes could be across static, as totally be... random. Yeah. And eventually, I and the other person just gave up on following the sheet music and just started tuning the radio randomly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he's you allowed to do it, art. you're allowed to do it. Yeah. Uh, another uh, element I wanted to mention was uh, on meeting the Coat Malat, uh, there's this quote from the book. He says, uh, on their world, Picard was suddenly and deeply moved. He had not realized until this moment how often on arrival at these worlds he had been greeted with anger, demands, resentment, hostility. It was not that he expected gratitude, he had not taken on this mission for reward or thanks, but he had hoped for moments of amity. Now it was being offered here on this quiet and lovely world a Romulan had offered the hand of friendship. End, end quote. And, and that's, at that point, Zani kind of becomes his primary confidant. He he calls her uh, when he's low and when he's having difficulties, and she gives him uh, advice. Uh, and it's very interesting to see how the Coat Malat are—they're basically the anti-Romulan Romulans. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're the opposite of Byzantine secrecy. Well, I, I like I like the, the the line Picard says to Raffi about you know after all these years, the universe, universe can still amaze me that there are. Romulan warrior nuns and of course we all had kind of that same reaction it's like Romulan warrior nuns this is awesome yes but it is interesting from before they get they meet the Quat Malat it keeps mentioning how Picard is talking Deanna Deanna Troy Deanna Troy Deanna Troy yeah all of a sudden after that now it's Zani 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 that's true it's true You're right where she he, she does become his confidant instead of Deanna Especially because Zani can give him the insight into Romulans that uh, right. that Deanna might not have, which is interesting. Uh, also, with the Coat uh, Malat, when we meet them before they get relocated to Vashti, they're living in something that's kind of their monastery is kind of like built inside of a of a Bodhi tree. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of these trees. I mean, it's not a Terran Bodhi tree, but it's like that where you have. A single tree, but it's got multiple stalks, right? And so, with space between them, so you can live in there. And they've just like strung curtains around it, so you can even see through the curtains. So even though it is a shelter, it is a structure. It still expresses their philosophy of openness. Yep, right. It's like the exact opposite of everything Romulans hold dear with privacy, where you know even. The book mentions how even in people's houses, you can have entire families that don't know if each other member is home. <laughs> right. It's right. so private that, you know, you can be you could be in that, your house with your whole family and no one knows. Well, this is the exact opposite of that. One thing that I uh, thought was interesting is, um, you know, there is this need for information to get to Picard about Romulan culture. There need to he needs help navigating it. And eventually he meets people like Zani who who were able to give that to him. 
Rafi has some knowledge of it because she's an expert on in in like Romulan diplomacy and stuff, which and she, that's why she gets assigned to this is because she has some expertise mm-hmm. here. But she's not an anthropologist, and Clancy assigns a younger officer to Picard to help him, uh, kind of at the last minute and not really with consulting him first. He assigns this younger officer, uh, who I think is a Trill, if I recall was correctly. She's Bajoran. Bajoran Holy refugee oh, no, settlement. That's right. She's yeah. Bajoran. Uh, to to serve as, a, as another kind of cultural liaison. Mm-hmm. And... I, you know, the way that's set up, it's like, okay, whose loyalties is this person going to have? Right. Is this person a spy? And the answer is no. Uh, the person's not really a spy, but the person eventually gets overwhelmed and leaves. And yeah. it's it's nice to see that, that not everybody here is super competent. There are some people who, who mean well and who are, who want to do good. But eventually, she sees something so horrific. She says, "I can't deal with this anymore. I'm, I, 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 I resign." Right. right. I thought it, I thought it was interesting that she's Bajoran, so and that makes her an expert on refugees and people yeah. who are traumatized. She, was born, she yeah. was born during the occupation, right before right. they were Bajor was re, was released and everything we see with DS Nine. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting character. Uh, one of the uh, things I wanted to mention too, uh, a, another element. Th- this was really interesting. Oh, it the trill is back on uh, at on the Earth. very beginning. Yes. Uh, who yep. is this? Who runs Picard's office on Earth for him? Yes, that's who. The She's trill an aide de camp okay. to Picard at the beginning. Yeah. So uh, during one of the refugee trips, and this is a very interesting Catholic connection here. I wanted to bring out. Uh, a, there's a they're apparently transporting a Romulan musical composer who mm-hmm. doesn't do indeterminate fa- polyphony. <laughs> But writes, yeah, a choral, exactly. writes a choral symphony, and uh, this is a quote from the book. The piece was called Laments for Home, Homes and Hopes. It turned out that the composer had been raiding the Verities databanks, the Verities the ship, where she had found an old human prayer and included lines from it. We cry, we sigh, we mourn and weep in this veil of tears. After this our exile, let us find mercy, let us find peace. Boy, that that's sounds the, familiar. Where yeah. have I heard it before? <laughs> yeah. So that's the Hail Holy Queen, and what I find interesting is how it, the, the, the actual prayer gets changed. So here's what it actually says. Uh, to thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, your eyes of mercy toward us. And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of your womb, Jesus. So instead of after this exile, let us find mercy, it's show us Jesus. Who is mercy? I mean, in peace. I in mean, peace. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 it actually does fit. I was, I was thinking about that. It, it, you know, some of it could be just a little different translation or however you want to put it. Yeah. But some of it is, you know, okay, they're trying to secularize it, but they're still saying the same message. Let yes. us find mercy, let us peace, find peace. In other words, let us find your son, Jesus. And so in it's a way, still, it still fits yeah. theologically. It's just, but obviously they're trying to secularize it instead of. If we looked at it in the context of the book, this is a sort of pre-evangelization moment for these Romulans. Mm-hmm. You could imagine that at maybe some of these Romulans who are searching for meaning and and comfort and uh, understanding could eventually, you know, find themselves with a Christian who would explain this to them and would be an evangelist. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I know I'm imposing, but of course, some, this is the, the secular humanist Star Trek, and you know they can't have that. <laughs> it, but still, well, we won't we won't see it. We won't see it, mm-hmm. but it. But I was, I was kind of surprised to find this in the book. I thought that was a very interesting was great. inclusion uh, there. So I thought that was fascinating. Uh, so a couple more moments in the book, some, some interesting quotes. Uh, Picard at the beginning, uh, he's, he's single-minded from the beginning. He, he's single-minded in the mission, can't understand, and barely tolerates anyone who doesn't see the righteousness of the cause. Uh, and this is what he says to as he starts out on the mission. He, he gives a, an address to everyone. I am grateful to each one of you for your decision to join me. You have left families, posts, and homes that you love dearly in order to commit to saving lives. I say to you that there is no higher duty than the preservation of life. Let us take up our duties with courage and with hope. With our talents and resources, we will achieve success, not for plaudits or medals of gratitude, but because it is the right thing to do and because we are able to do it. Now, and then it's interesting to see how over the course of the book that gets worn down and eventually even Picard gets broken uh, by the yep. end of this uh, on the 
on the shoals of all of the obstacles that get thrown in his way. Uh, to, but, the, but, to the point that he takes his marbles and goes back to Labar and doesn't save anyone after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. He saves some, but certainly, you know, he, he basically, and that's one of the things too with the, with this is when they give up after the Mars attack, they like the Federation, Starfleet, Picard, they just take their marbles and go home. Like all of those Romulans are left to their own devices and well, save yourselves now. Like there's still more that could have been done. But but there's no will to do any more at this point, and I I find that interesting. I, I don't. I guess I I kind of read the, Picard's resignation not as him giving up, but as like you know, it's it's either you continue this mission or you do with you you do without me. You know, it it I'm not going to stand here. It's more you know, as, as the way that the series put it, that it was like his last option. You know, it was right. his final last ditch plan of okay you know he's because he, this, this is this is the picard ego coming out here oh yeah you know what i'm so irreplaceable which by the way that's lesson number one they teach you in the military no one is irreplaceable <laughs> right but i'm so irreplaceable that oh the entire federation is going to back down from this opposition to this plan because of the attack on mars because i'm going to resign and it it like you see in the what I what I thought it looked like in the book is he was almost kind of taken aback that they said, "Well, fine, we accept your resignation." Right. Uh, speaking of your comment about in the military, they teach you that no one is irreplaceable. Who is least likely to uh, ha- to remember that lesson in the military? Admirals and generals. <laughs> exactly the ones ones who have been doing it for so long they they get that ego uh, ego built up. Yes, they've forgotten. Uh, so and then um, let's. And then at one point, uh, Picard has to say, um, hope alone is, was insufficient. If it did not translate into concrete, planned, and targeted action, then it was nothing more than fine words. And those meant nothing to these poor exiles. Above all, he knew despair was not an option. Uh, and it's, so it's interesting to see like, as he goes through, like he has this, this, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. We have to keep doing things. And at every turn, there are obstacles, obstacles from Romulans, obstacles from Starfleet, obstacles from politicians. And he keeps pushing through, but eventually, even Picard's optimism, his forward thinking, can't isn't enough. It isn't. Yep. It just it gets worn down. And I think it's it's interesting to see how Star Trek has really come to this place, whether it's Picard or Discovery or whatever, what have you. Of we're not the pie in the sky optimists like we used to be. And eventually, he he does lose hope. He does despair mm-hmm. because he could. And Rafi kind of points this out to him, even in the TV series. I think um, that okay, even without Starfleet, you could keep on saving at least a few people, right? right. And he doesn't. He just goes yes. back to France and and licks his wounds. And she feels frustrated with him because she wanted to go off label, so to speak, yep. and keep saving people anyway, but didn't think she could do it without him and even if it's just we've got a shuttle you know that we bought and we're saving five people at a time you could still be saving people right one thing and i i wish they had i mean we kind of see what's happening in the romulan empire from the perspective of the lower downs like the scientist Mm-hmm. who's, by the way, trying to communicate with his colleagues in the Federation who are also trying to communicate with him. But right. the secret police are, yes, I know it's an oxymoron. It's a, it's <laughs> redundant. <laughs> the, the secret police are intercepting their messages and changing them. So they're miscommunicating. Yep. But we only see what's happening from the lower down Romulan viewpoint. We don't see, like, what is the Senate doing? You know, I mean, I know, I, I, I know uh, the Senate was destroyed at one point, but someone is governing the Romulan right. Empire, mm-hmm. and we don't see things from their perspective. Also, they bring out, they, they strongly indicate that whatever is happening to the Romulan sun is artificial, that yep. this, is, this, is, this is not natural. This is not a natural supernova. Someone is causing this. And I thought they were going to deal with that either by the end of the book or in the Picard series, but they didn't, at least not in season one. Yeah. See, and that, that's one question I wrote down. That's kind of a big thing. If someone, maybe Romulan, from what they mm-hmm. suggest in the book, but someone 
causes this supernova that kills, you know, almost a billion people and severely disrupts a, a major galactic power. That's something I want to know more about. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I wrote down, you know, kind of as a note is attack on the Romulan stars. That could be the point of season two or three of Picard. Mm-hmm. Are they going to go back to that? I, w- I wonder. That, that that was never brought up that it was artificial supernova in the 2009 movie, was it? No. No, yeah. it just said that the sun went super. They really didn't deal with it in the 2009 movie other than this happened. And Spock's attempt to stop it, which right. failed. With well, the red- stop the stop the Romulan with the might, you know, whatever his name was that went back in time. Well, he had the red Nero. material thing, the red dot. Red matter. Yeah. The oh, red that's matter. right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, they really never talked about it in the 2009 movie. It was that came out during Picard. That, okay, that it was artificial. This, there was something artificial there. There was something that it, this was not a natural occurrence. And the book kind of expressed that even more, more, even more clearly that this and, is being done by someone. This is not just the natural this process of this star. Yeah, and that's, I think, necessary because if the Romulan sun were naturally going to go supernova, you would have hundreds of thousands or millions of years notice. Right. This would have been known yeah. all along. So if it goes supernova and you have a refugee crisis, it's because you weren't expecting it. It's because something right. unnatural is happening. But that ought to be obvious to everybody because supernovas don't come out of nowhere. And right. so it should have been obvious to everybody and that this is artificial. And that should be the headline. Someone has killed the Romulan sun. It, I don't know why. The, I think actually, I think it's bad writing that that yeah. is not the screaming headline. Right. Um, because and it's bad writing not just because it's unrealistic, but also because they're missing the opportunity of all of the dramatic possibilities that sets up. Of if right. if at the very beginning the Romulans realize someone has killed their star or is in the process of killing their star. They're going to start lashing out. They're going to start blaming everybody else, even if it's yeah. their and own someone, some faction within the Empire, which would be weird, but interesting. They're still going to be lashing out and blaming other people and saying, oh, no, the coronavirus was brought here by the U.S. Army. <laughs> <laughs> just as an so, example. Just an example. Um, and that's that's why I wonder, you know, I, I do agree that that it's it's not so much bad writing as just bad plot decision, you know, that. You can you can tell this is this was a decision they made. Okay, we've got the 2009 movie that blew up the 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 sun. How do we fit that into Picard? Well, we're going to say that it was artificial, you know, just to explain this fact that it was growing so quickly. And so I, I really do hope they go back and revisit it in Picard yeah. two, two or three, one of the two seasons, if not both of them, you know, and try to figure, you know, give us some explanation of who did this. Well, that's the thing is that there's a fu- the fundamental premise here is 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 there's a problem with it, and not just in the book, but imagined by the powers that be at uh, not Paramount, whatever it's CBS now. Uh, yep. You have a supernova that will hit fast enough and far enough to wipe out numerous planets and star systems, which is kind of weird, given uh, a supernova expands at light speed, but not enough, <laughs> like you'd have years before it would hit another star system. Uh, but and the only solution is to is for the Federation to give up his entire focus on exploration and slowly build thousands of ships to move them, as opposed to I don't know, sending the Enterprise there with the best minds and try to find out what's causing the star to get supernova and stop it, like they tried to do with Spock. And then when the synths go rogue, just give up. It, it just there, there seems to be a they didn't get thought through like so the implications because they thought. They liked this other thing better. They wanted to have this refugee crisis and Romulan Empire uh, in a mess. They liked that idea, and so they just kind of stuck with it, with despite any logical flaws. I, I can buy the idea of, of canning the relief mission once the sense kill everybody on Mars. I can kind of accept that. Although, realistically, it'd probably be, we're going to scale it down now. Yeah. And I think really... I mean, even though it will take years for the effects of the supernova to get out there, we should remember that, okay, some, you know, stars are very close to each other. There are globular clusters that are very dense, and Romulus could be in one of those. Uh, Also, like, you know, Zeta Reticuli A and B are like half a light year apart from each other, Mm. and 
they could each have planetary systems, but if one of them blew up, the other would be in trouble pretty quick. And you have to resettle people, even if they're not in immediate danger, even if it's going to take years for the blast to get to them. You can't just resettle people close. You're going to have right. to get farther out than that. Really, the immediate loss of life is is going to be in the home system. Right. Um, and they could have they could have done a little bit better than they did with the science on that. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, again, you've got the, the reticence of the Romulans to even get the Federation involved at all until the Federation says, hey, people, we know something's going on here. <laughs> right. Uh, we, will you let us help you now? Right. You know, so you right. could understand why the Federation wouldn't be involved in trying to figure out what's going on with the sun. And then again, you know, they, they show the Romulans where even when there's accurate data as the event is happening, they still beat the snot out of the scientist who dared raise his head to say, hey, there's real problems here. Why aren't we doing something about it? Right. They, they, don't, they don't value the life, uh, life the way we do, and they, they uh, are more important to protect their own power than it is to uh, get the truth out. And, that, that and, and, comes and going, going back to the, you know, you talked earlier about how we don't hear about from the Senate. And of course, it's kind of like, you know, one or two sentences, but they basically say that as soon as the elites learned that there was a problem, they bugged out of town. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. all the broadcasts from like the Senate or whatever are from like another planet on the out uh, on the edges of the Empire. They all went to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Picard at the end of the book. So after resigning his commission, Picard is he doesn't know what to do. Uh, he he basically says, "What good am I? What am I for? Who am I now?" And, and he's like totally lost. And this contrasts with Bruce Maddox, who's left Agnes to pursue his obsession with creating life his God complex. And he says, uh, this he, he does invite her to come along and she says, no, right, right. And his quote is I'm gone. He thought, and while he did not know where he was going, he did not think who am I now? Or what shall I do? Bruce Maddox yeah. had never really doubted himself or his great elusive dream. He never did. So that contrast and Maddox, that, that monomaniacal obsession drives him. Whereas Picard is not a monomaniac. He mm -hmm. he is he's motivated by more than just his personal mission in life. To he was more motivated by the his attachment to an institution that had a cause behind it. It was there's that subtle difference between the two of them, right. and yet so Picard is left empty at the end of this, but Maddox is still obsessed. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and it's also the the service of others, you know. Like you said, you know, Picard is serving the, the organization, but of course, also it's the the people involved. It's the, right. you know, the going mission. out and exploring. It's the uh, doing the relief effort. It, you know, all these all these things that that Starfleet does. He's serving that ideal. He's serving that those people. Where yeah. Maddox is, no, I've got this ideal, and it's only this ideal I'm going to serve. Right, Jimmy. I just a comment on Maddox and Agnes's relationship. Um, I don't see what Agnes sees in him. <laughs> he, he, I, I mean, he's, he really is kind of off in his own world. Yes. And I think the, I, the best I can do with it is she's young and I must have been like Doogie Hauser or something to become a medical doctor that young. Right. And I think she's just like so impressed by his reputation that she's like kind of become a stalker for him and and yeah. and then you know that's the satisfaction she gets is I'm with this great man who has this super reputation as a genius or whatever and that I think that's the emotional benefit well, she draws from being with him a but little both bit of, of these the, people are kind yeah. of broken student professor thing there's kind of the dating him for his brain yeah. Because, you know, they talk about how they're, you know, they're discussing the issues of everything, you know, all the stuff that's going on around the, the soon type androids and all that. It, it's kind of a, a dating him more for his brain than his personality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bit of the uh, idolizing the professor sort of thing going on as well, which which you true. see sometimes, I guess. So let's talk about where we stand at the end of this novel. You know, so the Federation, it's turned inward. Uh, the even the the focus on outward exploration has kind of been muted. They're riven by internal politics and failing to help the neighbor. Starfleet is no longer in in ideal what we thought it was. Uh, so 
that's where the Federation stands. And then where Picard stands, uh, he'd always been optimistic about people's chances to better themselves, to become more, to progress. Like, Next Gen is full of Picard speechifying about how people are, are better and can be better. Uh, he, he says it to Q at several points. Um, but by the end of this novel, he's crushed. He failed profoundly. Uh, here's a quote. He says, more and more, he was coming to think that people such as Zani were a vanishingly small proportion of sentient life, that selflessness was so rare as to be almost non-existent, that only a thin facade lay between civilization and savagery. Uh, this is a broken man at the end of this novel, t- completely disillusioned. And that's where <laughs> that's where we end things. It's a hard place to leave a novel with your hero. Uh, if we didn't have the... Series exactly, it'd be tough. <laughs> exactly. The only the only way you can do that is if you have if you have something else planned to lift people's spirits. Right. Like say a ten part TV series on CBS <laughs> yeah. All Access. That yes. ends with the main character dying and becoming a synth. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Oh well, yeah, we've already talked or about that one. <laughs> dying and being replaced by a synth, I should say. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um. So. Uh, Interesting. So, any last thoughts on this book? Or, uh, la- anything we didn't get to mention, or a, a final thought on it? I, I think one thing that interesting by its absence. I, I saw a review uh, today uh, on the book that kind of mentioned the same thing: is Loris and Javon are only mentioned in passing at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no talk of them now. Of course, there's also the countdown comic. web or comic series yeah. that discuss how they came into Picard's life, right? But they're only really mentioned in passing, and it's like, but they were some of the more interesting characters of the <laughs> TV series. I would love I to have seen them for more than just one line about how how he's brooding again. Yeah, yeah, I, those they were so awesome. We needed more Loris and Javon. Yes, but uh, yeah. and, and as a whole, I really, really enjoyed this book. This was, I mean, it was an easy read, but it was, I thought it was for for what it set out to do was well written. Like you, like you said, yeah. Jimmy, you know, Jimmy, it's it's a good book. I mean, it was very. I read yeah. it you know, twice, once over the course of a week, and then once to sit down just to read to prepare for this. And I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to read. Jimmy? I, one thing I wish that the book had that, and it may have even been in there and I missed it, is where does the comic book series fit into this chronology? Yeah. It wasn't obvious to me. I wish they'd I wish that it had just mentioned, oh, and then we went to this planet that was the one from the comic book series and we picked up Laris and Javon. They wouldn't have to go into it, but just some clue about where does how did the two fit? And it may have even been in there and I may have just missed it. But overall, I thought the novel was really well done. I thought it had way more depth than typical franchise fiction. I thought it did nice world building with Romulan culture. I thought it drew nicely upon human culture, mm-hmm. uh, Terran culture. And I was really impressed by uh, the author. I had not read any of her stuff before, but I'll I'll definitely be look on the lookout for more by her because I thought she did a really good job. Yeah, I think this is a cut above the usual Star Trek novel. I, I've read lots of Star Absolutely. Trek novels. Yeah, you're I, the it, expert in that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually I still read a lot, um, and I've read them ever since I was a kid. And and this was this was a cut above. I love the breadth the 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 of the places and people and characters she covered in in the like you mentioned the the various subplots of this one and uh, also the breadth and time that she there, there was time for this to take place it, it always annoys me when the tv series you know they they cover the, all this stuff in 24 hours <laughs> because for whatever reason it, you know whereas this took place over the course of years it gave the characters time to grow and change and and develop uh and i'm interested to see where the powers that be are going to take the 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 stuff that has been developed. The Federation and Picard, Picard changes in the course of the series, but where the Federation is going to go and Starfleet are going to go from here, um, and we're probably going to. And my guess is we're going to find a little bit about that in the in the third season of Discovery because right. that takes place in the far future. And, and that's where I'm wondering if they're going to point to this point, you know, where we see the mm-hmm. start, you know, the planetary systems threatening to secede. If they're going to point to this is when the Federation start started dying. Yeah, is this I mean, um, this whole event? Fex it? No, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. There's a good term for that. Succession. <laughs> Instead of Brexit, it's uh, fix it. But uh, but uh, yeah, maybe that sounds like fix it, which is the opposite of uh, what they would be doing, I guess. But just don't <laughs> say fit exit. That that would 
that would be something else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. We should wrap things up here then. Uh, I, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Star Trek, including Gary, Christopher, Thomas, Leonides, and Frederick. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. And so that's it from us. What did you think? If you've read it, Picard, The Last Best Hope by Uta McCormick, or if you're going to read it, let us know if you if this makes you want to read it if you haven't yet. Uh, you can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, or a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing QLess, the Deep Space Nine episode that introduces Q and Cisco to much, oh, uh, much that, humor. That, there <laughs> there is great one good in line in that. Yes. <laughs> I'm not Captain Picard. Yeah. <laughs> So until then, Father Corey Steakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Uh, glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest, and remember, Joel, I'm true. <laughs>